Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus and transform Hoxton. Well, uh, good morning to those of you here in the building and good morning to those of you watching from home. It's really good to be with you again this Sunday morning and hallelujah, Christ is risen and it's warming up. I don't know about anybody else, but I have been feeling so miserable the last few weeks because it's been so cold and finally it feels like we might be turning the corner and uh, entering the season of spring, um, which of course is also a season of new life. And uh, in the Easter season, we love to think about what life in the light of the resurrection means and looks like. We like to think about what does it mean if Jesus is raised from the dead, what does that mean for our lives? What difference does that make to us? How now shall we, can we live? And I want to explore those Bible readings that we just heard read for us today. Uh, And I'm going to begin briefly in Acts 10, and then I'm going to move into John 15, and then I'm going to move back into Acts 10 at the very end for our conclusion. So if you are somebody who likes to have your Bible open with you, you can have those readings in front of you on your phone, or if you're at home and you've got your Bible open, you might want to keep those passages up. Um, Acts chapter 10 reports something extraordinary. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. While Peter was preaching and explaining the gospel, explaining to them who Jesus of Nazareth was, how he had died and been raised again, how he had reconciled people to God, the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them. And that's my prayer for us now. So let's just take a moment to pause and to pray. Father, humbly, we beseech you, we plead with you that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now. That as I speak, as we listen to your voice in scripture, we might be filled with your Holy Spirit. That your living presence would come and flood our hearts with peace and hope and joy and love. That we might be refreshed and renewed this day that our lives might be transformed, that we might become more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The circumcised believers who were with Peter, says Acts 10, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. It's a really important part of um, the New Testament, this little passage around Acts chapter 10, where we see these extraordinary, and chapter 11 as well, we see these extraordinary moments where the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God, is poured out upon even Gentiles. Now, it's worth remembering that the first followers of Jesus were themselves Jews, just as Jesus was. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one of God. Uh, They believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of scripture and prophecy. But the first followers of Jesus, Jewish as they were, believed that this was about God's promise for the Jews, for the Israelites. Even though the very scriptures themselves testified that God's Messiah was going to be a light to the nations, that's what the prophet Isaiah said, it's too small a thing for you uh, to be just for Israel, my Messiah will come and be a light for the nations. 
Even though those scriptures said that, many of the first followers of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, believed this was a renewal movement within Judaism. In other words, just for those who belonged to that old covenant promise, those who were circumcised, those who traced their family lineage uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. But something extraordinary begins to happen in the book of Acts, and it's reported to us in those first decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And the extraordinary thing that happens is that the living presence of God, who hitherto had been given to uh, the Jews, the Israelites, for the prophets and, and in worship, was now being poured out upon even Gentiles, even those from beyond uh, the, the, the people of Israel, the religion of the Jews. And this meant that there was a new category for the um, a new category for the people of Israel to understand uh, a new identity. They were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. And this is what the Scripture says: for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter concludes: surely no one can now stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit as we have. So this, this new covenant ritual, being baptised, being incorporated into the new covenant people of God, is for these uncircumcised Gentiles because God has loved them. God has poured out his grace upon them. God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon them and they have responded. And this is where I want to pivot to think about John 15. John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. And that's what the gift of the Holy Spirit to those uncircumcised Gentiles was. It was a moment of God choosing them, not because they belonged to the people of Israel, not because they had met some criteria, but because he was choosing them and pouring out his Holy Spirit upon them. When we encounter Jesus Christ, we are given a new identity. We are made friends of God rather than slaves or servants of God. And, and that's where I want to come on to the substance of what I want to say to you today, that the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be friends of God rather than slaves of God. So turning to John chapter 15. John 15, verse 15, and I want to concentrate on this verse in particular. You could preach probably 15 or 20 different sermons on this little passage we read, but I want to concentrate on this verse. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. That's what was happening when the Holy Spirit was being poured out upon those uncircumcised Gentiles. God was making them friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Now the Greek term translated in our uh, NIV Bibles as servant is actually doulos and it is better translated as slaves, like a bondservant, one who is uh, enslaved, one who has no choice but to do their master's bidding. And Jesus is offering friendship instead of slavery. And that's an offer that he makes to you and to me today to be friends of God rather than slaves of God. That might seem a bit strange to us because it's hard for us to imagine ourselves as slaves. 
Don't we live in freedom? Isn't the glorious thing about living in the West in the 21st century that we're free to be who we like, to do what we like, to associate with how we like, to define ourselves the way we like? Don't we live in freedom? I can't be a slave. I'm free. But actually, it doesn't take very long to reflect on the ways in which we are enslaved by our culture enslaved by our worldview, by the thinking of the Western world. Our thinking is shaped by the world around us. Our thinking is shaped by the advertisements and the commercials and the technology and the infrastructure of the world around us. One of the greatest uh, devices for enslavement in our culture at the moment, we carry around in our pockets with us all the time so that we can be reached, recorded, monitored, advertised to, sold to. The world around us has a story about what humans are for and it wants to impose that story upon us. It wants to be our master. So how is slavery alive and well today? Well, it takes all kinds of forms. I don't want to concentrate on one of them, but just as a preamble to that, some of us are what would be called wage slaves. You have a mortgage to pay. You have bills to pay. You have the desperate need to go and work and earn and try and earn more money so that you can fulfill all the commitments that you have and the expectations upon you, providing for dependents or paying mortgage or the like. Domestic slavery is alive and well in the UK, I'm sorry to say, uh, in all kinds of different ways. Both expectations placed upon women in particular in the home, but not solely women. Also, um, family members who are uh, invited, as it were, to travel from different parts of the world and then serve in a family household and often can drift into domestic slavery. I won't spend too long on that, but there are plenty of studies that talk about ways in which people are in domestic slavery. Poverty slaves. Um, The slavery that comes from deprivation. Not having what you need, always having anxiety and fear and worry. Fear slaves. Slaves to fear. FOMO, the fear of missing out. Social anxiety about whether you are uh, successful enough, attractive enough, popular enough. And then finally... Identity slaves, a kind of slavery about who we are. A question that's actually quite peculiarly modern. Many hundreds of years, people didn't really have great uh, sort of angst or worry or concern about their identity and who they were. It wasn't something that was talked about or really explored. It was just a given. But we in the West in particular have become slaves to a narrative about our identity. What do I mean by a narrative? Well, narratives are, or stories are the ways that we interpret and understand our lives. They're the sequence of events that have occurred in our lives and some of the encounters and the experiences that have happened in us that give us a scaffolding, a structure uh, around which to create meaning and purpose. It might go like this. You might say, I was homeless as a child. That was what happened to me. And so now it's my purpose in life to help the homeless. It might say, I was given a leg up by someone and now I want to give something back. Something happened to me as a child and uh, that's affected who I am. 
Sometimes it's about our behaviours. I was mistreated, I was taught this way, and now I can't help how I behave. It's a result of what happened to me. It's someone else's fault. Now, I'm not disputing that there can be real truth in these narratives, and significant events in our lives do build and shape us. But there are multiple stories in the world about our identity, multiple stories we can hear and we can uh, embody and we can take on about ourselves. But for Christians, the story of our salvation and of God's purposes for the world is the one that we believe to be the most significant. For Christians, the defining story about our lives is shaped by the understanding that we are created in God's image that we bear his image, his likeness, that we were made to be children of God, to be under-stewards of creation with him, to bring all things in creation into worship of the living God. And the question is for us, which story is most dominant in our lives? Which narrative defines who we are? The Christian story, the story of the gospel, or other stories of the world and the culture around us? A couple more words about identity stories. And I hope that maybe these will resonate with you. Um, some of the stories that are around, some of the narratives about our identity are around, um, build upon these little motifs. There's one identity story, um, which is what you might describe a therapeutic identity story. That your story, the story of who you are, is only to be discovered by looking inside at your deepest desires. That's who you are. Uh, the things that you desire most, the things that uh, you want to express most, that's who you really truly are. And anything that the world might say um, is a constraint. So your identity in that situation is not found necessarily in God or the story that God has to tell about your life or, or your family or duty. It can be an identity story of self-actualization. The idea that the only way to be truly free and truly who you are is to self-actualize. Whether that's whatever, whatever success or achievement looks like to you, that's what you have to pursue. And anything that prevents that is an imposition and something negative, something to be fought against. And therefore, uh, identity is something that you can reinvent based on whatever your desires are at that time. That's a therapeutic identity story. There's a minority or a victim identity story. You know, if, if you are a minority of any kind or description within your society or your culture, you can be encouraged to adopt a minority and a victim identity. Now, again, there are real ways in which people are marginalised and oppressed, and that has to be tackled, uh, and we have to work for justice. But I'm not preaching a sermon about justice, I'm preaching a sermon about how we undertake and, and explore and discover our identity as friends of God. The challenge with the victim identity is it can always leave us uh, in a way unhealed, wallowing in our suffering. And it's not that suffering isn't very real and it, all kinds of things uh, that need to be put right about it. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote in a book in 1984 uh, entitled Resurrection. He wrote about the way in which sometimes we look at uh, Jesus crucified on the cross and we see him as the ultimate victim. And as the ultimate victim, he vindicates us in our own suffering. If Jesus was a victim, so are we. If Jesus is nailed to a cross, then my goodness, I've been crucified in so many ways too. 
with whatever marginalization or oppression I've experienced. But Rowan Williams goes on to say, but Jesus doesn't stay on the cross. Jesus is resurrected. And as the resurrected one, he still bears the scars of his wounds. Yes, he did suffer, but death has not prevailed. Resurrection life has overcome. He is risen, healed, and he goes ahead of us into a strange new life. And that's why he's not always recognized. Because actually, the life that God is inviting us into is one that isn't easily defined or recognized according to the suffering, but rather is about the healing and the resurrection life of the new creation, which is coming and drawing us on. So what's your primary identity? Some of you will have filled out the census. I hope all of you filled out the census survey recently. And when you do our Hoxton Listen survey, you'll be asked to tick categories about um, age and ethnicity and nationality. What's your primary identity? How do you define yourself and describe yourself to the world? Is it a racial identity or a political identity? Many of us voted on Thursday and have been reading the results over the last couple of days. If you're, if you're elated or devastated by the results of the local elections, just perhaps your identity is too rooted in a political identity, whether you're elated or devastated. Is it a national identity? Is your allegiance to the flag of your country greater than your allegiance to the cross of Jesus Christ? Is it gender identity or sexual identity? What really makes you, you? Is it based on family, class, success, achievements? Does your Christian faith affirm and adapt to suit your identity? Or is your identity defined, shaped, challenged by your faith in Jesus Christ. Because Christian faith says that you are a child of God, that you're adopted by grace, that you're saved by Jesus. Christianity says that your identity, I could borrow this from Tim Keller, is not something to be achieved, created, defined, reinvented by yourself, but rather a gift to be received. Your identity is not something to be achieved, it's a gift to be received. The gift of being adopted into God's family. And therefore, we are not slaves to our cultural or narrative masters. We are friends of Jesus and he gives us a new story, a better story upon which, upon which to build our lives. So we are no longer slaves, instead we are made friends. What does it mean to be a friend of God? Well, in the ancient world, friendship could be used to describe hierarchical relationships. So the way we might think about friendship as just sort of being equal, all being equal, is not necessarily quite the right category to lean on. You could be friends with your teachers, with your superiors, with your business partners. Friendship could be de described by the, the Greek term koinonia, it's a term that we translate in uh, our Bibles as fellowship, but it can also be used to describe a business partnership. So if you had a business partner, if you set up a company, uh, you could have a koinonia of business colleagues. It's a term that can describe a total commitment to one another, not just social or recreational purposes, not just the people that you go out for a drink with uh, on a Friday night. And we can be friends with those who teach and guide us. And therefore, we can still submit to our friend, Jesus. Jesus is our friend, but that doesn't mean that he's no longer our Lord. We can still submit to him and obey him, 
but he is our friend. And the language of the Bible suggests something far more intimate than we might expect about friendship. The Hebrew word for friendship is the same as the Hebrew word for secret. Isn't that interesting? Friendship and secret. They share a similar etymology. Kaud. It's the same root as the term to recline or lie down together. Total trust and vulnerability. Friendship is about reclining with another, lying down with another. Not standing to attention, on your guard, alert, but relaxed, vulnerable, intimate. Think about John in the New Testament, the beloved disciple, who is described in John's Gospel as reclining against Jesus, leaning upon Jesus. It's an intimate posture. And actually, the beloved disciple John is the very same one who receives this prophetic vision that's written and recorded in the book of Revelation. So you see, there's something about the the confidentiality, the secrecy, that which is confided, the close, intimate friendship in which secrets are shared and passed on, intimate secrets shared. Psalm 25 verse 14, it gives us this verse which uses this word cowed and it's a struggle for people to know how to translate it. So the NIV says, the Lord confide, sorry, let me say that again, the Lord confides in those who fear him. In other words, the Lord shares his secrets, shares himself confidentially as it were with those who fear him. But in the NRSV translation it says, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. Do you see, to confide and to be friends in the Hebrew are the same thing. It goes on, he says, he makes his covenant known to them. This is about confidential conversation, intimate sharing of thoughts and feelings. What does it say in the scripture we read earlier on? It says, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. That's the mark of friendship. Now we know this from our own experience as well. Our closest friends are those with whom we share our most intimate moments. And of course the friendship between husband and wife includes the total vulnerability of nakedness and lovemaking. And it depends on that total commitment of the covenant of marriage. That's of course why Christians believe that sex outside marriage is so damaging to us because we need that total covenant commitment for the most intimate, vulnerable uh, relationships. But we also know the depths of friendship that we develop with those with whom we share our pains and our heartbreaks, our fears and our hopes. You know the people that you have shared with when you have been at your most desperate, when you've been going through the most difficult and challenging times of your lives. So what defines friendship? Well, I think it's a progressive revealing of secrets, of intimate secrets. It's about intimacy and about exposing, confiding yourself in one another. And this is what the Bible offers us in Jesus, friendship with God. It's not what other cultural narratives or even other world religions offer us. Tim Keller makes this comment. He says, Muhammad writes a book and he leaves it and he dies. What have you got? A book. Buddha leaves some sayings and then he dies. What have you got? Some sayings. Confucius writes some thoughts and then he dies. What have you got? Some thoughts. But God comes to meet us. 
in his son, Jesus Christ. And he draws us into intimate friendship, intimate relationship. And Jesus shares everything that the Father has made known to him with us. And then he dies to remove the barrier of sin, to forgive us all that has estranged us and alienated us from God. But then he rises again and he walks with us and he lives with us by his Holy Spirit. What have we got? A friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend. God does not hold back. Everything given to Jesus is passed on to us. We're made partners in the family business. I talked about that term koinonia. We're in a fellowship. We are partners in the family business. And what's the family business? Well, it's God's saving purposes for the world and it now includes us. Jesus has revealed everything about the purposes of the Father to us. Nothing is held back. Friendship is at the heart of the gospel. Friendship with God made for us by Jesus. And so we have this friendship language at the beginning of our reading in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The language there is filial language, the language of friendship, friendship in the Trinity. As, as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal friends, so now we are welcomed into that friendship. God's very nature is expressed in three persons coexisting in loving friendship. We're created for friendship. We're made in God's image. And that means that we need intimate friendship. If you experience loneliness, it's not because you're somehow ungodly and not doing very well as a Christian. It's because you're made in God's image. And God is not alone. God does not dwell alone. God exists in friendship between three persons. Because you're like God, you're made for friendship. Now, human sin has created barriers and blockages between friends. And I'm sure we've all had the experience of having a row or a falling out with a friend or a spouse or a child. And you can't look them in the eye and you can't telephone them. And if you see them, your heart flutters and shakes because there's anxiety and fear and pain. There's a barrier. Friendship has been broken. But God overcomes that barrier by the death of Jesus on the cross. We're forgiven, we're reconciled to God and to one another. Now, growing in this friendship is a lifelong work, but it has huge benefits. Jesus says that we will bear fruit as we grow in friendship with him. Some of us may have had negative experiences of friendship. Some of us have been let down, or we've been shut out and forgotten. Some of you have had friends who have stopped calling you. They've abandoned you. Some of you have had friends who have turned their back upon you. You've been let down or you've been shut out. But friendship with God is not like that. Friendship with God, he will always let you in and he will never let you down. So here's the good news. God has chosen you to be his friend. It's not like those awful moments in the school playground or out at a social occasion when you look around for a friend and you can't see anybody that you know and you experience loneliness. God is, as it were, that enthusiastic child who comes bounding over to meet us and says, can I be your friend? Let's be friends. He comes to meet us and find us in Christ. We didn't choose him. We didn't have to look around, scour the environment and work out who we could go and approach. He chose us. That's what Jesus says. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. 
That's why the Holy Spirit was poured out on those uncircumcised Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, the reading that we began with, before they had even been baptised. They hadn't expressed agreement to friendship with God. They hadn't sort of signed a contract and said, yes, we'll be friends with God, we're baptised. God came and befriended them by the Holy Spirit. He gave them gifts and a new language to express this new identity. But then they had to grow in friendship. And baptism was a sign of that new relationship, the new identity. There's a new covenant bond and commitment expressed in baptism, just like a marriage service where husband and wife make a covenant commitment to one another. In baptism it makes a covenant commitment to this friendship. And friendship with God involves time spent together, time in prayer, time in conversation, listening to his voice in scripture, praying. We're not loved because we obey. We obey because we are loved. And if that word obey is difficult for you, just bear in mind that it comes from an old French and Latin root, obediare, which means to listen deeply. Friendship is listening deeply. Tell me your thoughts. Tell me your story. Tell me who you are. Tell me your hopes. Tell me your fears. We can be friends. I will listen. God listens attentively. He invites us to listen attentively to him and to one another. That's obedience. We are not loved because we obey. We obey because we are loved. And because we are a family and we bear God's image, friendship with God also involves friendship with one another. Listening attentively to one another, taking time to spend with one another in connect groups, in prayer triplets, gradually revealing to one another the intimate secrets of our lives, our experiences, our wounds, our hopes and our fears. Jesus says, you're no longer slaves. You're friends. Because I've revealed the Father's business to you. I've called you into koinonia, into friendship with God. I'll never shut you out. I'll never let you down. Jesus says, I'll let you in. Come and recline with me. Enjoy intimate friendship with me. I will confide in you all the Father's purposes, all his business. I will listen to you. This is what is offered us by Jesus. Shall we stand and pray together? And uh, I just want to invite you to, in a moment of quiet, share a moment of friendship with Jesus. And by that, all I mean is in your heart, in the silence of your heart. Just say hello. Hello Jesus, I'm here. And I'm willing to share every part of my life with you, holding nothing back. My fears, my hopes, my anxieties, my anger, my pain. And as you do that, Jesus will come to you by his Holy Spirit. The living presence of God will be with you in your heart. Father, thank you that we are 
not slaves, we're not enslaved by the stories or the narratives of the world around us, we're not enslaved by our past, our sufferings, we're not enslaved by racial or national identity or political identity. Thank you, Father, that our true identity is to be found through friendship with you in Jesus. Thank you that you have made us friends. May we know your intimate presence in our lives. May we know your business, your work, your purpose. May we share with you all of our pain and our anxiety all of our hopes and our joys. Father, thank you that Jesus died to put to death all of the brokenness, all the pain, all the division that separated us from you. And that now he is risen and calls us into new life. Thank you, Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you're in the room or if you're watching online, and this is a new message for you. I wonder if you'd um, humour me and just imagine yourself as a, a child in a school playground, waiting for someone to play with. Nervous, anxious, alone. And I want you to just imagine a joyful child running over to you and saying, let's play, let's be friends. Jesus invites you today into friendship with God. And if you've never experienced that, I want to pray that you'd experience that now. And all you need to do is say, yes, yes to Jesus, yes to God. And he'll pour out his spirit upon you. And I just want to encourage you that if that's you today, watching online or here in the room, uh, then a brilliant place to learn more about this friendship with Jesus is the Alpha Course, which is at five o'clock on Sundays. So do have a look on the website, have a look in the comment thread or the chat and you'll find out the information. But, but come and learn more about friendship with Jesus. Father, thank you for pouring out your spirit on us this day. We thank you for friendship in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.